You're listening to Bible Prophecy Daily, a weekday podcast where Bible prophecy matters and matters greatly. All right, I want to continue the study that I've been doing in the uh, Bible about the seven-headed, ten-horned beast, which appears in its uh, final form in the book of Revelation, but probably requires a uh, solid interpretation of Daniel chapter 7 in order to really interpret. And Daniel chapter 7, which we will be covering today, requires an understanding of at least Daniel chapter 2, I mean, that's the question. Does Daniel chapter 2 have to do with Daniel 7? And if so, um, you need to also probably include in that Daniel 8 and Daniel 11 to understand Daniel chapter 7. So we had to. So that's what we've been doing so far is, is we've been studying the rest of the book of, of Daniel, kind of leading up to this Daniel chapter 7 study uh, in order to then move on to the book of Revelation. And I have to say that I was not, um, was not, thinking this was going anywhere, <laughs> to be quite honest. It looked like, and of, for those of you who are just now joining us, uh, I had had an interpretation about uh, these matters, and I noticed it didn't quite fit with some aspects of things that I've discussed in other places. So the purpose of the study was to go back and check all our facts in every possible area and almost argue for the other side as much as I could to make sure that it wasn't right. And I just thought, in fact, when I finished the this study that we're going to work on today, I actually finished it not having any idea what it all meant. Uh, you know, I basically ended it with thinking, uh, this is what I told my wife, it's like, well, I basically argued, I think, succinctly for both sides. And uh, I don't, I think that they're both basically right. So I don't know what to tell you. But after that, I did think of something that makes, I think it all makes sense. But I will have to wait till next time in order to talk about that with any uh, degree of certainty. I want to sort of double check some things and then do a more complete video about that um, next time. So in this instance, I'm just going to go through Daniel chapter 7. And like I said, I'm kind of going to argue for both sides. I have in the past taught about Daniel 7 that these four beasts, this uh, lion, this bear, this leopard with four heads, and this diverse beast with ten horns, were contemporaneous. I called it the contemporaneous beast view. It was based, the first time I heard it, was from Charles Cooper in his four-part paper called uh, Daniel 2 or Daniel 7, Equal or Not in which he, I believe, very cogently challenged some of the um, problems with equating Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 and brought up some really important points um, and argued that these four beasts in Daniel 7 do not, as they do in Daniel 2 with the multi-metal statue that Nebuchadnezzar, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, they do appear sequentially, obviously, that is to say, um, Babylon is conquered by Medo-Persia, is conquered by Greece, is conquered by Rome. It's a sequential view. Cooper challenged that in Daniel 7, that these beasts, the grammar and so on and so forth, could be that they arise at the same time, they exist on earth together. And 
one of the there's lots of intricate arguments about this i mean he he goes into a lot of stuff about how they're really actually to be equated also in daniel 11 of the king of the north the king of the east and or, or the kings in the east and the king of the south and that the diverse beast is the king of the west and he has some methodology for that which i'm kind of ambivalent on but the point is that uh, it made good sense of a lot of things. There are still questions about that that I feel like can only be explained by that. Uh, but the big thing was that in Revelation 13, so now we move all the way to, to the book of Revelation when these, the seven-headed, ten-horned beast first appears. Well, technically it's in 12, but in 13, he shows up and the seven-headed, ten-horned beast is clearly being linked to Daniel 7. It's got the same number of heads. If you combine all those four beasts together, the four-headed leopard, the bear, the the diverse beast, and the, the lion, you've got seven heads, obviously ten horns, because ten horns was on the diverse beast. It's got the characteristics of a bear, a leopard, a lion. Uh, and it is described in the same uh, very specific terminology, the three and a half years, the war on the saints, uh, the blasphemous words and names on its uh, forehead and the boastful speech, etc. So it's just absolutely abundantly clear that they're supposed to be linked. But then the question arises, why is this beast in Revelation, why does he have characteristics in the traditional model uh, of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome? And, you know, there are lots of theories out there that sort of minima, minimalize this to a, a lot of degrees. You know, it's, you know, the Antichrist, just very, uh, the, the history of the world and, you know, some nice platitudes. But as we discussed, I think, at the beginning of this uh, series, all the kind of platitude sort of stuff just breaks down uh, somewhere along the way. And so it really did seem to be good, a good theory, this contemporaneous beast view, but then that caused problems in uh, re- the later on in Revelation, specifically Revelation um, 17, in which it says of these seven heads of this uh, beast, five have fallen, one is, one has yet to come, but when he does come, he must remain a short while, which basically leaves you very, very few options in a lot of different ways. And it's not just if you could somehow figure out a way to make that sense of contemporaneous uh, beasts being represented. It's very difficult. I I think it's an insurmountable problem, basically. All right, so let's jump right into it. And it's going to be kind of expositional, although I'm not going to go through every verse by any means. But uh, the first thing that we come to that I think deserves to be talked about is this idea of these beasts coming out of the great sea, which it says in Daniel 7, Verse 5, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. So this idea of the great sea is pretty much synonymous with the Mediterranean Sea. And I say pretty much synonymous because, I mean, it basically is. I mean, there's a few instances where it's mentioned where it's a little ambiguous, but basically... This is the Mediterranean Sea, and that could be, you know, taken with a grain of salt because this is in the vision portion of this thing. It's not specifically reiterated exactly in the interpretation section, but it's certainly not disputed or given an alternate explanation either. Uh, I think it's interesting for also the reason that it says in Daniel seven seventeen 
that these four great beasts in the interpretation sections, this is the angel interpreting what he saw. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. And the reason I think that's interesting is sort of tangential to our discussion today, really, but it is notable that that it in, does that interchangeably. It says quite clearly that they came up out of the sea as it reiterates in our Revelation passage. But the interpretation is that there are four kings who rise up out of the earth. There are a lot of interpretations, especially in Revelation 13, that make much of the idea of the beast there coming out of the sea and the false prophet coming from the earth. And there are all kinds of interpretations that use that as its uh, centerpiece. And I think that this, at the very least, shows us that we need to tread very lightly on that because this is an explicit uh, teaching that uh, they are used interchangeably. I'm not saying that the sea can't mean all the things that people say it means, but that's just the problem. The sea is one of the most general terms in all the Bible, as you can imagine. So it has been used poetically to describe just about everything, which is something we're going to run into again in this study. All right, this next section is about the beasts themselves, and it's a pretty big section, so I'm just going to read it. The first was like a lion, and it had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and that before it actually is a spatial before it, we'll talk about later, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up uh, among them Another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. And it goes on and talks about that. And then obviously there's another section in which that is interpreted as well. But that sets the stage at least. So if you remember from last time, we had uh, read Daniel 8. And I had more or less confirmed for myself that Daniel 8 gives credence to the traditional idea that the bear uh, here can represent Medo-Persia and the leopard can reasonably understood to be Greece. And as I discussed, I really just didn't like a lot of the ways that other interpreters were making this be Greece and making this be Medo-Persia. But with Daniel 8, it gives us a biblical reason to understand things about, for example, the three ribs in its mouth or the being raised on one side for the bear being matched up, for example, in Daniel 8 talks about the unequally yoked Medo-Persian empire. The, the, the Persians were greater than the Medes. It makes it that explicit in the Daniel 8 passage, which gives credence to this idea that being raised up on one side can in fact mean that, you know, we don't have to rely on historians or worse, you know, commentators uh, that ha- that fancy themselves historians that like to just say things that, that go with their interpretations. But in this case, we have solid ground to believe that. In the same way with the four-headed leopard with wings, you know, and I, we're going to argue that characteristics are what are, are important here, not the animals themselves. The characteristics of a leopard, for example, would be fast. Wings would sort of give also 
credence to that. A leopard with wings would be a particularly fast nation, and then four heads. So again, Daniel 8 gave us credence to the traditional interpretation that this represents the Grecian Empire, because in Daniel 8, it spoke, I believe, of the speed of Alexander's empire. A lot of commentators make, you know, say, Alexander conquered the world really quickly, and he and his, his army was very fast. They were known for their speed and all those kind of things. You know, they're just not worth anything. But when the Bible in eight, Daniel 8, 5 says that this uh, goat, which is explicitly the Gre- Grecian empire with Alexander the Great, is not touching the ground in its conquest, that gives us cre- biblical the biblical idea that it is, in fact, considered a fast empire by some uh, measure. Similarly, the four heads on the leopard were given, I think, a biblical uh, concept that, of the four generals of Alexander, and that makes sense as well. So, again, we're sort of arguing and trying to find the real basis for the traditional interpretation, and those are two things I feel like I can... Uh, I can get behind if I had to. The problem with the first one, though, uh, the eagle, the lion with eagle's wings, the wings being plucked off, being made to stand on two feet like a like a man and a mind of a man given to it, is often argued, obviously, to be uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. If it's going to be equated with Daniel 2, then it needs to be Babylonia. Commentators say a lot of things. Uh, first, they will say that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians were referred to as lions in scripture and eagles. So let's read those passages. Jeremiah 4, 7 says, A lion has gone up from his thicket. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone out from his place to make your land water. Your cities will be ruins without inhabitant. Uh, That is, uh, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, and it does call him a lion in that sense. Jeremiah 51, 38 says, The Babylonians are all like lions roaring for, for prey. They are like lion cubs growling for something to eat. Um, also, eagles in Ezekiel 17.1, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, uh, propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. Say, thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings and long pinions, rich in plumage of many color, came to Lebanon and took the top of the cedar. He broke off the topmost of its young. Uh, and then also Lamentations 4.19, our enemies are were swifter than eagles in flight. If we fled to the mountains, they found us. If we hid in the wilderness, they were uh, waiting for us there. And so that's kind of compelling. Uh, It's less compelling when you realize that other people in that same breath were also called lions. For example, Sennacherib and the Assyrians in Jeremiah 50, uh, 17. So Jeremiah also calls him a lion. The people of Israel are scattered like sheep, which lions have chased away from the king of Assyria, devoured them. Now, last of all, the king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has gnawed their bones. So he calls both Nebuchadnezzar and uh, uh, the king of Assyria in the same breath, lions. Um, it's, it's a minor point. I feel like this is good if we have more evidence. If this is all that we have, I feel like these are just poetic words that could mean it. And there's another problem with it that we'll get to in a minute. But I do think that there is better evidence than this to understand uh, uh, the first beast as Babylon. I do want to mention something about lions in the Bible to sort of prove my point that if you're, if you're dealing with something probably in the Mideast, one of the most ferocious predators, i.e. lions, you're probably going to have a lot of uses for that in the poetic sense. Lions in the Bible are referred to as poetically as God is a lion. The devil 
is a lion. Jesus is a lion. David's coastal enemies, like the Philistines, etc., were lions. And then we've just seen the Assyrians and the Babylonians be the lions. So basically every enemy of Israel. But another thing that commentators will say almost universally in the commentaries is that uh, winged lions were a symbol of Babylon. It's the universal symbol of Babylon is winged lions, case closed. And that is just uh, not true. I wrote about that extensively in my commentary, but here is the basic conclusion of that in in that in that section it says so the problems with the idea that winged lions are symbols of babylon are as follows they are not symbols of babylon according to the babylonians and are never referred to as such that i know of in their writings the ishtar gate has lions on it because lions are a symbol of ishtar and even then they are not depicted on the gate nearly as much as the other animals the con- the concept of the lamasu was mostly represented with a bull's body and had virtually nothing to do with babylon since they were assyrian I also think this interpretation causes a hermeneutical problem as well. If one is going to say that we should look for a cult for a culture's symbol for itself to decipher the following beast kingdoms, then how are we to deal with the rest of the beasts? There is not a shred of evidence that, for example, the Medo-Persians symbolize themselves with a bear. I don't even think the traditional commentators try to suggest this, probably because of the obvious lack of evidence. Nor did Greece make statues or reliefs symbolizing itself as a leopard, let alone Rome as the odd beast that Daniel describes in this chapter. In other words, if you're going to say that deciphering of the beasts slash kingdoms in Daniel 7 can be done by looking at the artwork of the kingdom in question and seeing what symbols they describe themselves with, then it needs to be consistent. So both of those examples don't really aren't really consistent all the way through. So if we said, well, you know, it calls Nebuchadnezzar a lion. Well, it doesn't call Alexander a leopard and it doesn't call Cyrus a bear and it doesn't call the Antichrist a diverse beast. I guess it might in that sense, but you know what I mean? So that's not consistent. It's certainly not consistent to say that they all describe themselves nationally as the animal in question. So I have problems with both of those interpretations. But there is a way to say that this is Babylon that I can get behind. Again, it's a biblical thing. And that is with the idea that its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. I think that specifically is it. Now, traditional commentators have pointed this out too, that this is a probably a reference to Nebuchadnezzar himself, not to Babylon and that it refers to the events of Daniel 4, in which God gives Nebuchadnezzar the mind of a beast for seven years, where he literally eats grass and acts like an ox until he repents and his right mind and kingdom are restored to him. There are some pros and cons to that idea too. The main pro, though, is that there is a very similar phrase in the dream portion of Daniel 4, in verse 16, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar's curse, which says, Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, let, and let that seven periods of time pass over him. So it seems likely that the lion's description, which says the mind of a man was given to it, corresponds to this. The con is that it would be reversed. In Daniel 7, the beast is given the mind of a man. And in Daniel 4, he is given a mind of a beast. 
This could be resolved by understanding Daniel 7 as only describing the restoration of Nebuchadnezzar. So this lion is restored. It's made to stand on two feet. It's it's changed from a beast, and now it's given the mind of a man. So it's just skipping the whole uh, other portion. Uh, This also causes a bit of a hermeneutical hiccup with the other beasts, since if the reason that the lion is a, quote, beast is because the king's mind was turned into the mind of a beast for a season. Are we to understand the other beasts in a similar fashion, that Cyrus the Great or Alexander the Great also had a similar experience but were not restored? So why are they beasts, and uh, why didn't they get a mind of a man restored to them? If I was a traditional interpreter and I had to make sense of this, I probably would say that perhaps Nebuchadnezzar was the only king on this list that re- that repented, which is a reasonable-ish conclusion based on Daniel 4. Um, and thus, he is the only one here that uh, is not a spiritual beast, if you will. But if that interpretation is taken, then it minimalizes the proof text in the first place that Nebuchadnezzar was literally given the mind of a beast, specifically an ox. So, you know, if you're saying that... <laughs> it. It's difficult, but I I think that it is at least defensible. Um, And it's not perfect, but I think I can defend it. And the reason, again, is because of that similar phrase, the mind of a man was given to it, and let his mind be changed from a man's. Moving on to more about the three ribs, the three ribs in the mouth of the bear, the next beast, which is uh, traditionally understood to be Medo-Persia, Those ribs are often said to be the notable conquests of Medo-Persia, which I have written off in the past because the way to interpret exactly what are the three, quote, notable conquests of Medo-Persia are is a lot of different ways to look at that, and it seemed like confirmation bias on the part of conservative commentators. But I wanted to re-look at that in history, and I do think that there are are two ways to look at the problem, but both of them logically can be counted as three. It depends on if you are looking at the bear as a king or a kingdom. If the bear is a king, that is to say Cyrus the Great, the the first and greatest king of the Medo-Persian Empire, then his his first conquest would be uh, Medea. He, He conquers Medea first, and then, you know, that's when they become essentially the Medo-Persian Empire. And then he uh, conquers Lydia and Babylon after that. So if it's Cyrus the Great, you have three notable conquests. He conquers Medea, Lydia, and Babylon and dies. If you are saying that the bear is the empire itself, then you actually would start the conquest after Medea because that's when it becomes an empire, right? The Medo-Persian Empire, which is confirmed by Daniel 8, that the empire is actually the combined nature of it. So if that's true, then the conquests of the Medo-Persian Empire would be Lydia, Babylon, and Egypt, which was conquered by Cyrus's son, uh, Cambyses. And after that, there really isn't anything else. So that was really the host. I mean, there were minor things, but for the most part, and this is, you know, 
just standard history. Those are the basic conquests of the Medo-Persian Empire. And I think that either way you look at it, either Cyrus is the beast or the, the empire itself is the beast, it comes out to three. Uh, I'm not sure which one is correct, but I'm happy with either one and fairly confident it's not historical confirmation bias uh, to get there, considering the other details we found in the Daniel 8 study. Moving on to the final beast in Daniel 7, which uh, sometimes interpreters call the diverse beast, just because a name is not given to it, so that's just a name that has kind of stuck, but it's got iron teeth, and we're going to read about it and whatnot. The question really is, does this have any obvious connection to the feet and toes and the legs of iron, for that matter, in Daniel 2? Because that's what it's supposed to uh, be connected to. And I would say there are both clear problems with this. I'd say the majority of the issues are problems with connecting those two. The first is that um, in Daniel 2, it's obviously described as divided and weak. That's really the only characteristic we're given about the chronologically last part of that statue. The only thing it says is it's weak, it's divided, it's anemic, essentially, and the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brutal. As you saw, saw iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. Um, and then the beast in Daniel 7 is, from my reading at least, seem to describe be described the opposite. It's very powerful. Uh, I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns which were on its head, and the other horn that came up, uh, and before which three of them fell, that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it into pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. He shall be divided from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. I've argued in the a recent podcast that um, Daniel 2, the medals and the statue, is best described as the end of the Roman Empire, a prophecy about the establishment of the kingdom of God with Jesus' first coming, not its culmination at his second, like is probably the case here in Daniel 7. And thus, like Daniel 8, this is a similar prophecy uh, of the future, but for different purposes. It may be that they are all the same in a sense, but the near-far dial is turned up or down on each chapter. So, for example, I'm starting to think more that Daniel 7 and Daniel 2 are connected, but the dial is so, turned so down to near-ish prophecy. It was still future to Daniel, but uh, in Daniel 2, that you get none of the almost characteristic Antichrist language or really even theology whatsoever in Daniel 2. You have to read into Daniel 2 the Antichrist, uh, but you don't at all have to read the Antichrist into Daniel 7 or Daniel 8 or Daniel 11 or Daniel 12. As I say, I think that that's 
it's a dial situation. It also uh, is probably true in Daniel 8, that is to say that the dial is turned a little bit more up because it's post-Antiochus. It's clearly giving a, a prophecy of Antiochus. It's very detailed, but that it just quickly bleeds into the same kind of language that we're used to with the Antichrist, the war on the saints, the three years, and three and a half years, etc. But there is none of that in Daniel 2. But that being said, I think there's enough to say that Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 are connected. So if I was going to argue against my earlier position, I would say that uh, you could probably say that Daniel 2, the feet and toes, are described as divided and weak, versus Daniel 7, where it's described as very strong. Maybe, maybe in Daniel 7, where he uproots three kings... And, you know, whatever that means, if he takes them over or conquers them, the conquest of the three kings by the Antichrist is um, maybe to be equated in a near far way with the division and weakness, which is the primary characteristic of the last empire in Daniel 2. The problem with that, I think, is Revelation 17, 12 through 14, which says, And the ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind. They hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called chosen and faithful. So I think you can follow the career chronologically of these 10 kings in a lot of different places. And they most of what they do happens at the very, very, very end of the 70th week of Daniel. For example, they are said to destroy the city of Mystery Babylon and burn it with fire, uh, which happens at the very end of the, uh, the day of the Lord. Uh, and also, they are said to go to war, as they said here, with uh, against the Lamb. And I don't think that's in some figurative sense. I think that is in speaking of Armageddon, when uh, the Lord returns physically and powerfully to defeat them. Because just before Armageddon is when this uh, the false uh, prophet, the Antichrist, and Satan himself do this weird thing where spirits of frogs come out of their mouth. And they do that to gather the kings to go to war against the return of Christ. So it's a very, it seems likely, based on everything else, that this is what's happening. What, and then in addition, we're told they are of one mind here. They all, in unity, give their power to the beast. It seems the opposite of division, even at this late date in the scenario. So, And that's difficult because in Daniel 2, the one thing you can be sure of is that weakness and division is at the chronologically last part of that kingdom. That's how that works in Daniel 2. So whatever, and it, it of course makes sense in the, the near-term uh, Roman situation, which did sort of death by a thousand cuts, kind of whim uh, whimpering uh, out of existence. But these guys go out with a bang uh, and in, in apparent unity. So it, it's hard to say that the division and weakness uh, in Daniel 2 should be read as the three kings being subdued. I think more than likely what we see and I think you can actually prove this through Daniel 7, is that the the three kings being subdued are part of the Antichrist's rise to power in the first half of the 70th week, 
probably it's a reference to certainly Egypt and Libya and probably uh, the king of the north of Syria as well, as my guess is what those three kings are uh, on his way to power. And I think there's actually a geographical reason for that too, but that's another story I'll get into next week. But uh, I think that you can say that's what it is, but my point is, is that that is a rise to power kind of thing, a pre-midpoint situation. His real kingdom sort of has unity, and that's what's described in Daniel 11 anyway. He, everybody... You know, he defeats people in battle in Daniel 11, but then it's like over. It's like, okay, you're the boss now. Take our gold. Uh, we, we give you our, you know, fealty, basically. So the Antichrist spends the rest of his apparent uh, 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 career in, through all the midpoint and apparently all the way to the very end with complete unity with these 10 kings, although their royal power seems to really only be uh, given to them for one hour. And that could be a reference to the entire three and a half years, or it could be just a reference to this very end. I'm not exactly sure about that aspect, but in any way, any case, it's a hard thing to, to argue. Um, I think you could also make the argument that the day that after the day of the Lord begins at some unknown point after the midpoint and the wrath of God against the wicked starts. So no longer are the wicked, uh, doing any good and marrying and giving a marriage. Now it's a, they're the ones that are on the run. Um, I think at that point, the, Antichrist kingdom will not have much strength, obviously, uh, but it does appear to still be unified and not divided if we uh, take that into account in uh, in the whole Armageddon situation. Briefly, I wanted to talk a little about what I have been calling Antichrist language in the book of Daniel uh, and sort of quantifying what I mean by that because I know it can sound a little wishy-washy. So, like Daniel 11.36, and I'm going to call that 11.36 through 12.13, basically two chapters overlapping. I'm going to call that one section because it's all part of one vision. Um, that is what I would call the major Antichrist language section. It has all of the uh, uh, elements. It has war on the saints, three and a half years mentioned, blasphemy, global conquest, divine destruction. He is destroyed, but not with human hands, etc., and the abomination of desolation specifically. Uh, Daniel 8 and Daniel uh, has what I would say is minor Antichrist language. It has war on the saints, very clearly, divine destruction, not with human hands, and specifically the abomination of desolation is mentioned. Daniel 7 has, I think, major Antichrist language, uh, war on the saints, three and a half years, blasphemy, global conquest, divine destruction, Daniel 9 doesn't have as much. I think the only thing you could be really sure that Daniel 9 has in terms of Antichrist language is the abomination of desolation. Uh, and he is in view there in the end of Daniel 9, but I think that's the main thing that he does. I mean, you could say, well, he starts the covenant and breaks the covenant, and there's something there. But So he's certainly talking about the Antichrist, but the theme is uh, not really developed in Daniel 9. So that's what I mean by Antichrist language. It's a very common thing uh, with Daniel, and that's what I mean to say that Daniel is focused on it. And that goes to show you the oddness to not have any of that in Daniel 2, which you would think would be there to some degree. Okay, so this next one is a little confusing, but I think it's important. And that is the fourth kingdom problem. So in Daniel 2, uh, following the traditional line, the fourth kingdom is Rome, depending on if you take the legs of iron and, and feet of iron and toes as the same kingdom. Uh, just that the feet and toes are the chronologically later point of the legs of iron. Or if they're two kingdoms, 
traditional interpreters make this a two-staged Roman Empire, and there is at least you know a call for that to a, a better degree in Daniel two because it does describe legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. So it does make it sound like they are two kingdoms, but it also makes it sound like they are the same kingdom. So hence the sort of chronologically later or revived Roman Empire aspect of things. Um, but if we assume that, and for those of you that are probably thinking, oh, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm dismissing the Islamic Empire concept because that is another thing. I think we talked about that at an earlier podcast to some degree. But I've written on that extensively. I wrote a book about it. It's my longest and I think my best book, uh, The Islamic Antichrist Debunked. You can read it for free online at BibleProphecyText.com, where you can find all of my books for free uh, in uh, web format. They're also available on audiobook and everything else. But um, anyway, so so I definitely don't think this is the Islamic Empire by any means. And I've argued, I think, well for that. But if... It is Rome in Daniel 2, then we kind of have an issue in, in Daniel 7 if I'm going to maintain... Okay, so Daniel 7 doesn't have a lot of language that suggests this is a two-stage empire. It's just another beast. And that and, and we know it's the Antichrist beast. And it just jumps right into this is the Antichrist beast, I think. But actually, I'm sort of wavering on that a little bit. Um, and that's kind of the problem. And... So if that's true, then it has the Antichrist kingdom coming right after Greece. And there is some, some you know, uh, reason to kind of think that because in Daniel 8, where the little horn is again mentioned, the same term, little horn, that's obviously Antichrist language, but it's obviously springboarding from a discussion of Antiochus Epiphanes and the abomination of desolation in the same way it does in Daniel 11. And in that scenario, the Antichrist clearly comes out of Greece in a sense, because obviously Antiochus comes out of uh, uh, Greece. Um, so Daniel is talking about Antiochus in the narrative and then just sort of transitions as he does to talking about the Antichrist because they are such intertwined types that it's almost as if he can't help going into a prophecy of the Antichrist when talking about Antiochus. So it could be, as I say, just the dial is turned up enough to where we get Antichrist language in Daniel 8, but it's still down enough to where it's mostly talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. As I said, the prophecy in that chapter about the evenings and mornings seems to apply, obviously, and biblically confirmed to apply to Antiochus. It is not clear at all how that fits into the end times timeline, that 1300 and, or whatever it is, 1250 days or whatever. Um it's not part of the other sort of time frames that we know of, uh, that is to say the three and a half years or even the 30-day and 45-day period. It's just, it's before all of that. So I, anyway, it does make sense with Antiochus, but not the Antichrist. So it seems likely that the dial is just turned up enough to talk about the Antichrist because he was talking about Antiochus, but not turned up enough to actually show the clearer picture of where the Antichrist comes from. But it is kind of like that in Daniel 11 too, but probably for the same reason. Daniel 11 transitions about verse 36 to talking explicitly about the Antichrist. It has moved on from talking about the Antiochus, though it was talking about Antiochus, and it was talking about him being the king of the West in that uh, chapter, and now it's talking about the Antichrist, presumably in the same role. So it just seems like 
if you wanted to say that Daniel 7, the fourth beast, again, looking at it, if it was chronological, just comes fully formed out of Greece, we skip Rome altogether, that would have some support from Daniel 11 and Daniel 8. But I pretty much believe that the only reason Daniel 8 and Daniel 7, if you will, skip Rome after Greece is because Antiochus is involved, which is just a springboard to Antichrist language, even though it's not technically correct in terms of which nation comes before. And it's not trying to be either, I don't think specifically. Um, But it is incongruous to the max to say that in Daniel 2, the fourth kingdom is definitely Rome. And then in Daniel 7, if we're going to say that it's paralleled in the sense that the first is Babylon, the second is Medo-Persia, the, second, the third is Greece. To say that it's going to skip Rome in that scenario seems unlikely. And I have another connection between these two beasts that I'm going to wait till next time to talk about that I think gives us our sort of final piece for this. But I will say that this problem inclines me, if nothing else, to the concept of of a revived Roman Empire. Again, if you have Daniel 2, that that final part be Rome, and you are going to connect these chapters, and Daniel 7 has obvious, the most explicit Antichrist, it's definitely not even mentioning Antiochus, this is just the Antichrist, then you have to make that a two-staged beast in order to be congruent with Daniel 2. And that's not the only reason that you would do it either. I think that you could say with the ten horns aspect of it, actually, if nothing else, gives you an out to make it a two-staged beast. I won't in this uh, in this argue too much for my contemporaneous beast view. It's in my commentary. I've made videos about it. Uh, just a couple points before we wrap up here on that on that though. Uh, as I said before, it uh, I saw when it says and uh, I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broken pieces and stamped out what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had 10 horns, and that's in Daniel 10.7. So a lot of people will use this phrase to say they can't be contemporaneous because it was different from all the beasts that were before it. But the interesting thing is that this ends up being an argument for the contemporaneous view because before it there, that before it always means in front of it. As far as I know, I just did a, a fairly brief study. I think I looked at most of, not all of the instances of it in the Bible, and it's never used in the chronological sense of before. It's always used in terms of you came before the king or stand before me or those kinds of ideas of before, not the chronological sense. So it was different from all the beasts that were in front of it, and it had 10 horns. Other instances do grammatically seem to make it uh, sound contemporaneous. Uh, that is to say, as I was watching these things, this beast does this thing to other things. So it's like, in the vision at least, it's all contemporaneous. They're all on the earth at the same time. There's no inst- there's no mention of one conquering the other and that kind of thing. It could be read into it. It's not impossible, but it's certainly not explicit. Then there's this idea of the rest of the beast. It says, uh, I looked and because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, 
The beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And, you know, I just can't think of a way in which the lives of these long dead empires like Neo-Babylonia, Neo-Assyria, or Greece, or Rome, or whatever, can have their lives prolonged for a season and a time. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Even if you said, I think even in the geographical sense, because the way I would argue this from the other side is I would say uh, that in the millennium, most of these places are mentioned. Egypt and Assyria certainly are mentioned as being a part, an integral part even of the millennium. Uh, you know, as far as Egypt and Assyria, the greater Israel view is uh, talked about. So you could say that their lives live on for a season at a time, but in a geographical sense, there's so much overlap in terms of geography between the Egyptian or rather whatever empires you want to talk about, uh, excuse me, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome all have very, very similar places. They all controlled Israel, for example. They all controlled, you know, whatever, most of whatever, name your area. They probably controlled a lot of it over the Mediterranean. So it would be odd to say that that they are divvied up now in terms of only specific geography that only specific ones controlled. It's just a, it would be an odd thing even in that context. But I would argue for that because of the millennial things. And I would also say, because of the word dominion, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and time. This makes sense in the millennial context because of the dominion language here in this chapter. And really, one of the things that I think connects Daniel 2 strongly to Daniel 7, and really, for that matter, Daniel 8 uh, and Daniel 11, now that I think about it, is the kingdoms uh, uh, being the kingdom being set up. That is to say, the, the kingdom of God uh, being fulfilled in, in its two-stage coming here, if, if I'm correct, in Daniel 7, and then its inception in Daniel 2. And uh, Anyway, it, it's the story of their dominion being taken away and given to God. Uh, that is the consistent theme. It's the way that it talks about it. It's the way that it contrasts it. Then thrones were uh, you know, set up and, and the real king you know, kind of stepped in sort of thing. Uh, so it contrasts these kingdoms and their dominion versus that dominion being given over to God. And uh, that is, I think, what's being said here. Their dominion is taken away. They're no longer going to be nations. And we see that in the millennium. These The uh, e- Egyptians and the Assyrians, they're bringing gifts to uh, to the Messiah in the in the uh, uh, millennium, and they're all subservient to him, um, and their lives being prolonged for a season and time. Even there, I think it has recourse to the millennium because you have, you know, the season and time. I think can be understood as the thousand years. This wouldn't be. This wouldn't. I don't think make sense if it was talking about the eternal kingdom, but because chronologically you would have to be talking about the millennium it does make sense because of course at the end of the millennium satan is released he he gathers together a great army it, there's enough people that are unsaved during the millennium that are survivors of the sheep and goat judgment presumably uh that are unsaved they, their, their numbers increase over a thousand years and everything's okay because they're being ruled with a rod of iron there's certainly sinners. It talks about in Isaiah, if you sin, you won't live as long and different kind of things. Rules aren't the same exactly, but they're, they're not, it's not a perfect world, at least outside the city. The city of, uh, of the new Jerusalem is, is, 
anyway, the, 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 let's call it the Ezekiel Jerusalem. I think the New Jerusalem is more specific to the eternal kingdom or whatever. But anyway, it's different. No one can enter that unless they are, you know, whatever. <laughs> My point is that the season and time makes sense because then, of course, the Gog Magog War in Revelation 20 takes place in which he does find enough people in the millennium to now beat their, their reverses it. it. It beats their uh, plowshares into swords and then they go against uh, uh, the the city, and it, of course, destroyed. Uh, if you've never heard that the Gog Magog War actually takes place at the end of the millennium, just read Revelation 20 when it specifically tells you that it is. Um, I also talk about that in my book. Well, I talk about that in most of my books, uh, now that I mention it. It's a lot of chapters, but you can definitely read it in the Islamic Antichrist book debunked again for free at bibleprophecytext.com check that out check out uh the next week's podcast i will try to make it pretty coherent and uh go over i'm I'm trying to decide if i want to just end this whole thing now and uh just say what i think it is and then go through some of the relevant passages, or if I just need to continue. Now we need to go to Revelation. I need to go through Revelation 12 and Revelation 13 after I tell you what I think it is, and then kind of use that as a way to check our facts even further, because maybe my new thing isn't right. It hasn't been peer-reviewed, as it were. Uh, So maybe this is the way to peer-review it, is to just essentially do exposition with it in mind as we go through the book of Revelation. So I think I just convinced myself of that. Thanks for listening to Bible Prophecy Daily. We hope you learned something valuable today. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. 